guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, you guys have been demanding a show on sleep. So I got one of the best, Dr. Kirk Parsley, okay, to come and talk about this bad boy. This guy's one of the, I would say he's one of the world experts on the topic. He is a former Navy SEAL and saw how much sleep was impacting other SEALs' performance, their, their mental energy, like all aspects of health were tied to sleep. And so he really tackled this on with full steam. And, you know, you're going to, you guys are going to learn a ton. We talk about defining sleep. We talk about the benefits of having adequate sleep in terms of your performance, insulin resistance, longevity, et cetera. We talk about the impact sleep aids have on your, on sleep, you know, talking about unconscious, being unconscious versus sleeping. Like, a lot, of, a lot of nuance there that is great. We even get into sleep cycles and what it, what it means to have high quality sleep. So I think you guys are going to love this. This is part one of two with Dr. Parsley. And at the end of this all, I hope we increase our value of sleep, realize why it's so important, and um, just lead better lives. So without further ado, the one and only Dr. Kirk Parsley. The guy is full of knowledge, full of game. And it is a true privilege to have you on the show, Kirk. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm full of a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to find out, I guess. I truly enjoy your story in terms of how you came to, you know, trying to improve the health of your, your colleagues as a, as a Navy SEAL. But in your words, how did you get into the world of sleep? Like, what was your, your journey to that? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll, I'll truncate it and we'll talk specifically about the, the medical journey. Um, just to be clear, I was, I was a SEAL first, um, did six years in the military, got out, went to college, went back into the military to go to medical school at, at the military school in Bethesda, and then went to the SEAL teams as a physician. And then being a Western-trained MD, I, I knew how to... Um, I knew how to identify, diagnose, and treat disease, but none of the guys had diseases. That's not what they were coming to me. These were healthy, robustly healthy people who by, you know, 99% of the standards of the world, people would say that person's, you know, a, a physical specimen of health, right? This is health personified, but they have their own expectations of their own performance, just like a professional athlete would. 
uh, or an Olympic athlete or something like that. And I don't like to compare them to athletes because it's, it, I, I think it's an injustice to the seals. I think it's a lot harder to be, uh, to be on your game 365 days a year for 20 years in a row than it is to play seasons of sports. Um, but, uh, just like athletes, they, their biggest fear is being put on the bench and the person who can put them on the bench easier than anyone else is the healthcare provider. And so they don't go see doctors unless like they, unless they have exhausted every other means. Um, and when they do, like when they're scheduled to just come see a doctor for a follow-up, they're just going to lie right to your face and say, everything is perfect, man. I got no problems whatsoever. But because I'd been a SEAL and they trusted me not to put them on the bench, they, they came in, they closed the door behind them and they said, Hey man, you're my brother. Let me tell you what's really going on. And I honestly had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on with them when they told me their symptoms. And it started with one guy, another guy, another guy. And you know, it's a word of mouth community. And you know, I'm sure there were conversations like, Hey, there's a SEAL doc back here, man. Like you you should go chat with them about, you know, the stuff we've been talking about. Cause they'll talk with each other about it, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I just started testing everything, uh, because I didn't know they, they obviously didn't have disease, but they all came in with these same symptoms, man. They were, you know, they were feeling lethargic. They were feeling unmotivated. They were feeling like they'd really labile or, uh, emotions. Their attention was down. Their focus was down. And, you know, and by seal saying he's unmotivated, that doesn't mean anybody else is going to be able to tell, right? Like he's going to go out, he's going to do his job. He's going to, he's going to work his ass off for the guy next to him. You're probably not going to be able to pick up on the fact that he's not feeling motivated, but he's grinding through every step of his life because he doesn't feel like doing anything that he's doing, although he wants to be doing what he's doing. Right. Uh, so, you know, basically you're saying like, I'm, I'm putting on, and you know, we, we had uh, nutritionists and exercise physiologists and strength conditioning coaches and rehab, like built in rehab facilities and sports psych. And we had, we had plenty of resources for these guys and these guys have been using these resources, but they were coming to me and just saying, man, I'm, I'm getting fatter. I'm getting weaker. I'm getting slower. I don't feel like doing it. I'm feeling, I feel dumb. I feel anxious. I feel moody. My sex drive is down. Their sex performance might even be down there. Um, but none of them complained to me about not sleeping, hmm. not a single one of them. Um, but I told you I'm a high school dropout. So <laughs> it took me a while to catch on to it. Uh, <laughs> And about the hundredth guy, maybe who came in my office and told me the same story. I mean, literally after 30 people had been in my office, I could have told the next 300 guys who came in my office, their story for them. I could say, Hey, I'm going to save you some time. Just read this. Tell me if that's what you're going to say. Let's move on. Right. Um, and of course that's sarcasm. I would, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but, um, about the hundredth guy, it kind of a light bulb went off in my head when he said he's taking, you know, he mentioned taking Ambien and I was like, you know, I feel like a lot of guys have said that. And I just kind of, I remember, I remember where I was sitting. I remember like scribbling a little note up in the top corner. And then I remember going back through all, I kept shadow files because that's how I keep them off the bench by me having records and nobody else having records. So I had shadow files and I go back through and I look through everything these guys had going on. And, Sure enough, every single guy who had 
who had been in my office had been taking Ambien. And so I said, hmm. And so then I started talking to other docs and my corpsman and so forth that, that worked directly with the guys and uh, talking to some of their medics and so forth. And, you know, this is an estimate. We didn't do a study on it, but it, we, we estimated about 85% of the SEALs were taking Ambien every night. Wow. And most of them had been doing so for multiple years. And to be honest, I, I didn't know anything about Ambien. Like, you know, I learned about it in, in my pharmacology class in medical school. I knew what class or drug it was and I knew the mechanism of action and I knew why we prescribed it. That was about it. Uh, did, did you ever learn anything about sleep and in your medical training? Oh, like, I, I didn't learn a damn thing about Maybe sleep. Maybe for five I, minutes. I, I didn't know, you know what, what I mean? I'm like, I didn't know what sleep was more any more <laughs> than anyone else's. In fact, it's really interesting. I can even, I can even talk to a room full of doctors, but I'd, I say this at a lot of my lectures. I'll say, Hey, before we get started, it's always helpful to define the terms that we're talking about. So who here has a good definition for sleep? crickets, right? Yeah. It's always crickets. I right. mean, it can be a hundred percent of hundred percent of the room can be physicians crickets. Nobody knows. Um, so I, I, I just had to educate myself. Now, fortunately I was in a really good position because the seals, this was 2009 was when all this started. So the seals already had this quasi celebrity status about them. And so I could read a book, watch a Ted talk, go to a seminar, watch a video, whatever. And I could call that person and say, Hey, I'm the doctor for the West coast seal teams. And I read your book or, you know, I've been introduced to your work and whatever means here. And I'd, I'd like to learn from you. I'd like to come proctor under, under you. I'd like to run cases by you. I'd like to have video calls with you, whatever, uh, whatever you would be willing to do. And every single one of them, every single one of them volunteered. Uh, I think maybe one or two people charged me to like come actually shadow them. Uh, and, and I did all that on my own dime. I took leave when I went to do that. I paid for my own flights. I paid those people myself if I did that. And, um, you know, and I did all this sort of in, de in addition to my, my daily work because nobody was paying me to learn about sleep, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I found when I just started shotgunning tests, I was taking, yeah, these guys were giving up 16 vials of blood to get 98 different lab tests because I was just going, let's look at everything that could be involved. Right. Mm. And what was coming and what came back is these guys look like that. They, they look like pre-diabetic metabolic syndrome, 65 year old, moderately obese men, mm. you know, on labs. And then the guy sitting in front of me is 32 years old with six pack abs and, uh, you know, working as, as a job of a SEAL. So wow. completely incongruous. I'm like, I don't understand. How does a 32-year-old guy have a total testosterone of 252? And when I send him to endocrinology, they go, well, that's normal because the normal range is 250 to 1100 and he's 252. Mm -hmm. he's, he's 32. <laughs> he yeah. has to carry 200 pounds and jump over a wall and kick in the door and shoot people. Like maybe he, get, maybe he needs a little more than the safety factor of two. Mm. So anyway, I... I, uh, of course, being trained as I was and thinking like a Western physician, like what I wanted to do is go in there and I wanted to decrease their estrogen and increase their testosterone and increase their DHEA and decrease their sex hormone binding globulin and improve their insulin sensitivity and decrease their, you know, decrease their inflammation, decrease their oxidation, like all of the, you know, give them thyroid medication, almost all their thyroids were off. And wow. I'm, and like, I, I just wanted, I just wanted to go in and fix all that. But if I, 
first of all, the Navy wouldn't have even let me do that if I wanted to. But if I, if the Navy would let me do it, almost everything that I did would have disqualified them from their job because you can't be dependent upon a pharmaceutical and then jump on a plane and fly to God knows where for God knows how, how long and, and, and do stuff where you might not have your medication. Right. So fortunately I, that forced me to say, well, let's see how much power we can get out of sleep. Because once I learned about sleep and what actually happens when you're sleeping and why we sleep, then it made a lot of sense to me. Like this was Occam's razor of all of the things, right? Because how can you say, well, you know, these six hormones need to be adjusted on these guys and these sort of uh, oxidative and, and uh, inflammatory markers need to be uh, modified on these guys. And like, what's the unifying theory for all of that? Mm-hmm. Well, the unifying theory turned out to be sleep. And I literally got laughed out of, you know, got laughed out of the room when I tried to bring this up to the leadership and say, hey, this is what I, this is what I think is going on with the guys. And to be fair, the leadership didn't know by any stretch of imagination, did they know how bad their guys were suffering because their guys aren't going to tell them. Mm -hmm. They're telling me. So I'm having to argue a case without giving any evidence that they need this. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all I can say is like, look, you need to trust me. Your guys are suffering. I can't tell you who I can't tell you exactly what they're suffering from, but I can tell you like, this is the gestalt of this and this is what we need to do. Um, but eventually, you know, they put me out in front of the guys and I started talking about it. And what I did is I, I, I really, you know, it was sort of an underhanded way for me to, to get to talk to guys about hormones because I knew they knew about anabolic hormones. I knew, I knew that they knew the value of growth hormone and testosterone and, uh, thyroid and insulin. I knew that they knew this stuff. They're really educated guys. They, 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 study a lot on how to become physically more resilient, robust, stronger, and faster and all that. And, uh, so I started doing lectures on all of that and, um, that, and, and then I started treating the guys that were coming in my office. I'm like, Hey, let's get you off sleep drugs and see what happens. And that's when it came up with, you know, I couldn't just take away their ambient and say, suck it up. Uh, I had to give them something. So like we came up and I, I worked with the, with the guys, like I, I'm like, well, here's what I've studied. And I'm like, I know these nutrients are really important for sleep. And this is kind of how it initiates. And I was given actually a pretty big dose of melatonin back then, something I wouldn't do now, but I was, had this whole combination and they were all taking it and got all these guys off of, uh, off of their sleep aids and I was uh, supplementing their DHEA and pregnenolone and using zinc to block aromatization of testosterone to estrogen. And these guys were flipping around 180 degrees. They were coming in. I had 45 year old guys hitting PRs in the weight room and doing, you know, doing better on their runs and swims and stuff than they'd ever done. Uh, and I then really started drinking the Kool-Aid that I was serving. Uh, and then the more, I, the more I learned about sleep and the more I worked with people, the more convinced I was that this is actually the most important part of health. And, I, and when, I, when I started that lecture series, and that's how I ended up meeting Rob Wolf because he, he would lecture on the same stage that I would, um, you know, to the SEALs. He was lecturing about nutrition and he talked a lot about sleep and I was lecturing on sleep and talking a lot about nutrition. And you know, we just ended up with this bromance and that's how I kind of ended up in that whole scene being on podcast and sharing stages all over the world with guys like Rob. Uh, anyway, so 
you know, once I got these guys sleeping well, got them off of the, uh, get them off of the sleep drugs, all of their symptoms started going away. And within a year, these guys had completely forgotten what it felt like to feel good. And they were, yeah, they were amazed. They'd come in my office like every two months and go, this is amazing. I, I, I forgot this is what it feels like to feel normal, to feel good. And then two months later, they come back and say, no, 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 no. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling good two months ago. I thought it was, but now I am. And then they do it again two months later. That usually happened you know, three or four times. Wow. And, and it was super powerful, like super powerful. And, and just to get a sense too, Kirk, like how bad was their sleep? Like, what, like just to get a sense of um, going yeah, from so, A to B. <laughs> well, about as bad as it could be. So uh, I, I, I frequently make the case that chaotic sleep is worse than routinely bad sleep, <laughs> routinely bad sleep. You can, your body can adjust a rhythm to, and maybe mitigate some of it. But when it's just chaotic, it's like, Hey, hop on a plane, go over there. Hey, you're going to work today. You're going to, Oh, nope. Sorry. You're actually working tonight. Uh, if you want to get any sleep, get some sleep now. Uh, I know you just woke up, but if you want any sleep for the next three days, you got to get it right now because we're, we're starting at 10 o'clock tonight. Um, and so like, you know, bouncing around time zones, different training zones, different combat zones, all this stuff. Um, but these guys were, you know, they usually started with, you know, going on a, going on a deployment or being in a training, heavy training cycle where all of a sudden they would need to sleep. If they were going to get any sleep, they needed to sleep right now and they weren't sleepy. And so Ambien was thought to be this completely benign thing. It was like giving them Skittles or something. It wasn't going to cause any problems. Just here, pop a couple of these. And, and if you know the, any extreme group of guys like seals, you know, one is good, two is great. Three's better. Uh, you know, and oftentimes they chase that down with a couple of cocktails and they would usually fall asleep. If you want to call it sleep, I don't, it wasn't really sleep. They were going unconscious. Uh, and they'd wake up about four o'clock in the morning. This is the routine story. They'd tell me. They'd, so they'd maybe sleep four hours. Uh, they'd wake, they'd wake up about four o'clock in the morning, couldn't go back to sleep. And they would say, you know what? I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to work out. I'm going to put in a really hard workout and I'm going to work all day today. I'm not going to take any breaks. I'm not going to take any naps. I'm going to be exhausted when I come home tonight. I'm going to, and I'm going to sleep tonight really good. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, how long have you been trying that? Be like, Two years. I'd be like, <laughs> keep going, man. It's going to work. It's going to work tonight. Like you just got to hit, got to hit that magic watershed point and it's going to work. And so, uh, yeah, I mean the, the, a lot of these guys have been doing multiple years with essentially no sleep because when I did, when I did sleep studies on these guys, their, their sleep studies would come back 99% stage two sleep, mm. which isn't yeah. sleep at all. Yeah, we'll, and we'll get into the stages of sleep, actually, which I think is really important because um, there's a lot of misconceptions like, yeah, you're unconscious, thus you're sleeping. We see this in in my world in the ICU and certainly in, uh, in amongst common folk. But I, I think actually a good point to talk about is what is impacted when you're lacking sleep? Because we're talking about SEALs that need to be on point, yo. Like they need to be like these are life-saving uh, missions that are intense, but like when you are lacking sleep, look, let's, let's put it out there. What is impacted by that? Yeah. Well, I, I meant to say this earlier when I was on my diatribe of how, how I got to where I am. I, I used to start the, I used to start the, my lectures with, uh, 
you know, the definition of sleep. And then I'd go into the, what I called the four pillars of health, which was sleep, nutrition, exercise, and stress mitigation. Um, and I've since switched that and there's three pillars of health sitting on this foundation of sleep because I honestly do not think that there is any, well, I know for a fact, um, I, I know it as, as well as I know anything, as, as, as much as anyone can know anything, I know for sure that poor sleep impacts every single area of your life. And the area that it impacts most is whichever area is most important to you because it impacts every area probably equally as bad. And so everything it means to be human, the human experience to design and orient yourself towards a future that you want, right? Everything that's in that, everything, every single component that you need to get to that future you're orienting yourself towards is reliant upon your ability to do that, which is based on your ability to recover from today. The whole point of sleep is to prepare you for tomorrow, right? My body and my brain use today as a template to guesstimate what tomorrow is going to look like. And if all of these systems and things were stressed and strained in my body and damaged and I need to repair these things and if anything I need to make more robust so that it can handle tomorrow and I can come out of, I can, I can wake up tomorrow a little better than I am today, that's what sleep does. Now, if you don't get enough sleep, tomorrow still comes. You, you don't get, right? You, you don't get to reset. There's no reset button. It's like tomorrow still comes, you didn't get enough sleep. So how are you going to get, how are you going to get through the day? Where are you going to get the resources? You didn't recover. You didn't, you didn't build up enough resources to handle tomorrow. So where do you get it from? We get it from cortisol. You get it from, you get it from catabolic activity. You start releasing stress hormones to use your body as a fuel source and to use your, your storages. Uh, the stress, you know, the stress hormones will cause you to release things that have been stored for famine and, disease and so forth like that, that's all going to be released today because we need it because we didn't, we didn't prepare enough for today. And so you wake up catabolic when you didn't get enough sleep. Um, even if you wake up, even if you aren't waking up catabolic, you will be much more catabolic that day than you will be, than you would be if you got a full night, full night sleep. Now, basically it, it, a very simplistic way to say this, and I, and I don't mean to offend anybody's intelligence by saying this, but it, it's, it's overly simplistic, but it's a good way to think about it is basically anabolic activity happens while you're asleep and catabolic activity happens when you're awake. When you are awake, you are catabolic. When you're working out to get stronger, you're breaking your muscles down. You're making yourself weaker. You're damaging your tissues. When they repair, they repair stronger and more robust. And now you're you've done anabolic activity and you can do that same work with less effort and less damage. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. That's a great way to put it because as once again, I always like to explain things like we're all four years old, like everything that's important to you, your mental performance, physical performance, high cortisol, that will affect your immunity, which we'll talk about as well. Like everything is impaired when you're having poor sleep. And so, Kirk, maybe talk about the, um, if we could get into like the sleep basics. Like you always hear like these, this talks about these cycles of sleep, REM, do I need more REM sleep what, and what have you? What's the, what's the lowdown? Yeah, so 
Yes. So this has really become popular. The, the, the funny thing about all this, I mean, it's just by sheer coincidence, I think when I started doing this, I mean, it was like digging for treasure to try to find any information on sleep other than, you know, scientific journals that, you know, seem purposefully designed to be unreadable. Um, and just more confusing than, (laughs) than helpful. And, uh, now it now it's like everybody's on to sleep and everybody's wearing these sleep tracking devices and they're like, sexy. It's the yeah. new, like I don't know when sleep became sexy, but it is like the sexiest thing around now. Yeah, and and Rob and I used to always say, "Why is it so hard to convince people to sleep, man? It seems like it, it should be as easy as selling sex. Like it feels good, it's natural. You don't even have to learn anything to yeah. do it. Like why wouldn't you just hop on this bandwagon, man? Yeah. Uh, it, it's cognitive dissonance that keeps people from doing it. Um, but. Uh, <coughs> Yeah. So, so now everybody has all these sleep tracking devices and they want to, they want to ask me like, Hey, I got two hours and 37 minutes of REM sleep and I got four or you know, four hours and 18 minutes of deep sleep. And I want to know, should I do this? Should I do that? I'm like, you know, pump the brakes, man. Like let's, let's be honest. Like we're doctors. We know how much we really know. <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of, uh, general ideas on how things work, but we're wrong about at least half of what we think we know. Um, and, and it's, and, and it doesn't do any good to get down into the weeds before you've, you know, before you've planted the garden, right? right. So let, let's build up the basics. And so the basics are this, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll superficially talk, uh, talk about sleep initiation and sleep hygiene and, and we can come back to it if you want, but you know, as most people know by this, by this time, um, our ancestors fell asleep about three and a half hours, three to three and a half hours after the sun went down. <clears throat> and the trigger for that was a decrease of blue light because the sun went down. They didn't have any other form of light other than a fire, which doesn't have a lot of blue light emission from it. And so blue light went down the ganglia in the back of the eye that, that sense blue light have nothing to do with vision. These are, these go directly to this sort of, secured his pathway back to the pineal gland to secrete melatonin. Melatonin is sort of like the starter pistol that starts changing uh, hundreds of cascades of events and changing neurochemistry, all the like, uh, you know, polarization of your neurons, which, which regions of the brain are communicating most effectively. Every, like everything shift, your whole neurophysiology shifts. And one of the big things that happens is a neuropeptide named GABA starts being secreted from the brain stem in higher quant in higher quantities. And that basically, uh, hyperpolarizes the uh, neocortex to make you pay attention to your environment less. Right. And uh, of course your eyes are still working. Your ears are still working. Your nose is still working. Your skin still feels like everything still works. You're just not paying attention to it. You're not engaging with your environment. And that's really the, the sleep science definition of sleep is that there's a barrier between you and your environment and that you can be awakened past that environment and then we'll call that sleep. Uh, I would add to that, that you need predictable, uh, you need predictable neuro, neuro, uh, neuro waves, right? You need a predictable EKG um, to at least establish that you are in some form of sleep and not just simply unconscious, right? If I hit you in the head with a baseball bat and you fall to the ground, nobody would call that sleep, right? They would say that's unconsciousness. And if we studied your brainwaves, it wouldn't look like sleep. So I think the brainwaves should be added into that, but who am I? 
uh, I don't, I don't get a vote on this. Um, so anyway, so what happens if all of those things get initiated and you start progressing down the pathways towards sleep, it's a gradual process. Like it take, like I said, it takes about three hours to shift your neurochemistry, your neurophysiology enough to where you feel like sleeping. And then what you will feel is stage one sleep. That's when you're, when you're feeling the sleep pressure and the sleep pressure is a buildup of adenosine in the brain is one of the big factors in that. And that will push you to feel like you want to go to sleep and make you feel fatigued and lethargic and lay down, close your eyes and you're in stage one. So you can still hear stuff, right? You're still hearing the rain on the roof or maybe the television in the other room, whatever. You're, you're kind of aware of it, but you're not really paying attention. You know, it's slightly different. And then you drop down into stage two sleep, which is actual sleep. It's called transition sleep. And then you go down into the slow wave sleep or deep sleep or stages three and four sleep or delta and theta sleep wherever. They keep changing the names, but we'll just call the deep sleep. We'll call that non-REM. Uh, this is kind of the invoke thing is non-REM and REM. So the deep sleep comes first and the deep sleep is that anabolic activity I was talking about. During that anabolic activity, your immune system is functioning at its highest, right? You are, you're, you're fighting everything off. If you're repairing any damage, you're fighting off infections, you know, viral, bacterial, parasitic, whatever, like you're, you're the most anabolic you're going to be at any time of your life because you have the lowest stress hormones that you will ever have at any point in your day is while you're in deep sleep. And fight or flight is the exact opposite of deep sleep. So if you think of everything that's going on during fight or flight, none of the, the, none of the stuff happening during deep sleep is going on when you're in fight or flight. When you're in fight or flight, you're 100% catabolic. You're using your body as a resource. Your, your whole body is like one bag of resources to get that meat suit out of there so that you can continue to live. When you're in deep sleep, it's exactly the opposite. 100% anabolic, you have no stress hormones. Well, you have some, obviously you would be dead, but uh, you, you have the minimal stress hormones you'll ever have and you're most anabolic you'll ever be. You're repairing all the damage. You're, you're pruning, you're flushing toxins out of your brain, right? A lot of people have heard of, have heard of that, right? The glymphatic system where your astrocytes shrink down about 30%, create channels for the cere cerebral spinal fluid to flush out waste products that are built up in your brain. You start pruning off new neural little knobs it looks just like a tree pruning right you start like shaving off those you start creating durable pathways for things that matter um and you start pruning off stuff that doesn't matter uh you you're actually kind of learning when you sleep that trend a lot of that happens in REM sleep too but specifically in deep sleep is the anabolic stuff so your digestion your fuel partitioning your storage of you know storage of fat your storage of glucose as glycogen uh you know Again, removing all the waste products, being your body ready to be able to get out of bed tomorrow better than you went to sleep tonight. And um, if you, well, okay, no, let me finish that. So you'll, you'll do a deep sleep cycle. So when we, when we plot this on histogram and it's taking in your count, your respiration and your pulse ox and your heart rate and your, uh, and all your brain waves and a lot, there's a lot of factors going into this. And then we create this histogram, which is a chart and it looks like stair steps and it goes down into deep sleep. That deep sleep lasts about 90 minutes. And then you start crawling back out of that. You go past stage two sleep again and you go into a little cycle of REM and then you do another deep sleep. That's at the beginning of the night. And then that transitions every sleep cycle so once from stage one all the way through a REM sleep back down to the next stage one, that's one sleep cycle. Those are 90 to 120 minutes long. 
mm-hmm. every sleep cycle gets becomes progressively less deep sleep and progressively more REM sleep to where your last sleep cycle in the, in the morning is primarily REM sleep and just a tiny bit of deep sleep. And the REM sleep is actually when we're emotionally categorizing and rehearsing things that we've learned and thinking through things that we've learned. And we found that during stage two, we can actually trigger people's memory to start thinking about something that they learned during that day. And they'll think about it in REM. And, you know, if you've ever learned a language or been struggling with a math problem and gone to sleep and woken up in the morning with the answer, that's, that happened during REM because you started associating areas of your brain that weren't associated before. You put information together that you've been able to connect in a way that you couldn't do while you were conscious, that you couldn't do when you had a lot of stress hormones going on uh, because stress hormones impair the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And so now if you wake up deficient in any of those things, it's pretty obvious what you'll be deficient in. But what most people don't think through is that the primary thing that makes us capable in today's society is our prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is in, is impaired by stress hormones. So if you're using stress hormones to compensate for poor sleep, you're decreasing executive functioning and that's your ability to communicate. That's your ability to be a parent. That's your ability to make a good decision. It's your ability to solve problems. It's your ability to plan. It's your ability to, it's your, as Anthony Sapolsky calls it, um, or Robert Sapolsky calls it, uh, he calls it the simulator. So we can actually try an idea out. If we have a good prefrontal cortex, we can say, all right, there's three options here. Let me think. I'm going to see what each one of these things would most likely lead to. That's prefrontal cortex. Oh man. And just think about that's exactly like as an ICU doc or any like acute care physician, this is what you. That's what you do. This is your livelihood. Absolutely. And there's, and there's a lot of research and, uh, and, and I, I encourage your healthcare providers listening to this, like do this research for yourself because if we, if we ever get to the question, I'll tell you the, the most important part of improving people's sleep is convincing people how important sleep is. Yeah. If you believed it hundred percent, 99% of people are going to be able to get great sleep just because they made it their number one priority. Right. Mm-hmm. So you go, go and do your research on this. And this, this is very telling. Um, it, it's kind of elaborate how to do it. So how they do it, but I'll, I'll simplify it. Um, and basically what they, basically what we've proven and the sleep research, sleep literature proves is that when you, when somebody is sleep deprived or if they've just, so how do I phrase this? So you, you have a, if you have a sleep deficiency, you perform very similar as if you've just stayed awake too long, right? So after about 16 hours of wakefulness, your performance starts declining significantly. Uh, when you've been awake for 24 hours straight, you perform measurably worse than you would have performed five hours earlier. <clears throat> and this has been um, th- this has been compared to blood alcohol levels. So they've measured people's performance with a certain amount of sleep deprivation or just being awake for a prolonged period of time. And they've compared that head to head with people that they're, that have, they're just sleeping well, but they're giving alcohol to. And they've done this with driving. You can do it with strength. You can do it with speed. You can do it with coordination. You can do it with problem solving. Every, like every single metric of being sober 
it looks just like that. And what's worse is that just like with alcohol, I mean, really the reason people get in trouble with alcohol isn't because they become disinhibited. It's because they don't realize they're disinhibited, right? If you knew that it's like, yeah, I took a drug and I'm just feeling disinhibited right now, but I know that's a bad idea because all the, like the other 99.9% of my life that I've been awake and sober, I've known that that was a bad idea. So I'm not going to do that now. But what happens when you're drunk is you, you lose, you lose the ability to assess yourself, like your self-awareness goes away. And that's why you think you can drive when you're drunk and you think, Oh, I'm not impaired. Well, the same thing happens when you sleep deprived people. So you take somebody and you, and you, test them, you teach them something and test them or you test them in something that they already do. doesn't matter. You test them while they're sleep adapted. They've been sleeping well for a while. And then you, and then you take away two hours of sleep from them. Instead of sleeping eight hours, they sleep six hours and they come back the next day and you test them. They'll do worse. <laughs> Interestingly, you ask them, how do you think you did? And they say, I did worse. I, I was tired. I know I, thought I did worse. And then you do it again the next day and the same thing happens and do it again the next day and the same thing happens. But by about the fourth day, they still, they're still doing just as badly. Uh, their, their performance is still declining. But when you ask them how they think they did, they say, I think I did fine. I've, I've completely adapted to this new sleep schedule and I think, I've, I think I did just fine. And then you can show them the data and, they, and there's documentation that the, the subject will actually argue with the researchers that their data is wrong because they know, they, they know, they know for a fact that they did just as well today as they had been doing before. So is that why you hear those people that, that say like, Oh, I could operate on four hours of sleep. No problem. I feel good. Right. Like that's the science right. behind it. Wow. Right. And so what, what I find a lot when I get people, when you, when I get these really sort of frenetic paced uh, clients that I work with in these annual programs, these people haven't slept well in decades. A lot of them. And they think, oh, I'm going to get up and I'm going to da, 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 da. Well, all the research proves that you will actually get less done because your prefrontal cortex won't be for working as well. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes that you're going to have to repair. And you're going to, there's going to be inefficiencies and there's going to be brain lapses. And if you're, if you're sleep deprived enough, you're actually going to do little micro sleeps where you're falling asleep and you don't even know you're asleep. Um, and then you're coming back to wakefulness and it's like a blip in the matrix and you don't even really know what happened and you just keep going on about your day. But once I get these people, once I convince them how important sleep is, which is 90, like I said, 99% of the battle is getting them to believe that they need to sleep and I get them to make it their priority. And by the way, if you, if you want to be my client, like this, this comes out before you be, you can become my client is that you're going to try sleeping, uh, as your priority for a while. And then once I get people and they still resist it, don't get me wrong. Like they're still resisting. They're like, no, give me hormones and peptides and make me feel better. I'm like, no, no, you're going to sleep. I get people to sleep. And once they've slept for three or four days and they slept well uh, for three or four days and they've gotten adequate sleep uh, for three or four days, they will literally say things like, man, it's like somebody put a filter over everything and all the colors are hyper like the the whole world seems brighter to me, man. Like everything seems so much more simplistic and calm. Like what, I don't remember feeling this good. And once they've lived in that space, 
sadly, I mean, the relapse is high, but once they've lived in that space, if you can get them to live in that space for a month consistently, usually I find that they'll never go back. But if it's just a few days here and there, they'll just slowly convince themselves that this is normal life again. And then you get them to refocus and they'll be like, oh my God, why did I? It's like eating pizza, right? It's like every time you eat pizza, you regret it. And you're like, Jesus, I'm 50 years old, man. Like how many times do I have to teach myself this lesson that I don't like pizza? It makes me feel like crap. And then my kids start having pizza two weeks later. I'm like, yeah, that looks pretty good. I'll have one slice. And like, Damn it. How stupid am I? You know? Yeah. So that, that's, that's how it goes, man. Wow. No, this is, this is people. This is gold. I, I mean, I got so many questions actually, but um, just to reinforce uh, what Kirk was throwing down, like, you know, you have the stages of sleep, but your deep sleep, that's where you're getting your recovery, where you're getting that anabolic um, processes, um, like true recovery. So because a lot of those sleep aids, if I'm not mistaken, Kirk, they're not necessarily getting you into that deep sleep, you know, like as we were alluding to with Ambien and so right. forth. Um, yeah. So that was, that was one of the big struggles. Um, the, the, there's a lot more information out now. Uh, this was, so when I first started this, this was before Ambien was, was, had started getting, uh, well, not just Ambien, but all of the Z drug companies had, had started uh, getting successfully sued uh, because they were causing dissociation and they could prove in the research that they knew that this dissociative behavior was happening. So if you think about it, it's really like you're, it's almost like you're making somebody schizophrenic because mm. you're, di- you're dissociating their neocortex from their lizard brain. And you're basically just turning, you're turning that filter off. Like you're just saying, all right, let's get rid of this neocortex. We don't need that because you're using this GABA analog. That's a thousand times more powerful than GABA. Mm-hmm. So like, like I told you that GABA is, is, you know, hyperpolarizing our neurons and making it harder for our, for our cor- our neocortex to pay attention to our environment. Well, these sleep drugs do that a thousand times over, 10,000 times over. So you really aren't processing anything. Like I said, your eyes are still working, your nose is still, everything still works, but you're not processing it. It's not, it's not going through any um, filter essentially. And so you, you revert to these lizard brain activities, right? And we know what those are, right? The, these are, these are the survival animal instincts, right? And so they'll go out and they'll purchase or I don't know what you call it, purchase, solicit a prostitute for the first time in their life, or they'll drive to Vegas and gamble away their life savings, or, you know, they'll go downstairs and eat all their kids' junk food or whatever. Um, you know, I had a patient who was a nurse, which wasn't a patient, she was a friend of mine who was a nurse. Her doctor gave her Ambien. She, she, she was a single mom, and her kids were at her where at their father's house and she wakes up in the morning and go downstairs and her house is just ransacked and there's stuff everywhere. And she freaks out and runs back upstairs, locks herself in the room, calls the police and they come over and clear the house and everything. And it, it turns out it was her. Like she had taken Ambien and she'd gone downstairs and she had like cooked ramen and eaten, eaten ding dongs and ice cream and like left stuff all over the place and knocked stuff over broke, broke, like they think broke her coffee crafts on the floor and like all sorts of stuff looked like some, somebody broken into her house and ransacked it. It turns out that it was just her. She'd, and she'd done it. And so ambient or, you know, the Z drug started getting successfully sued for that. That's a diatribe. I shouldn't have gone off on except for going long already, I think. Um, but anyway, the, 
what, what happens with that dissociation. And when, like I said, when we do the sleep study, it's just stage two sleep. You're not getting the benefits of sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, and the literature, when I was reading it was saying, Oh, maybe it decreases uh, REM sleep by about 20%. And because the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry gets to cherry pick their data that they present to the FDA. Well, once they started getting successfully sued, then they had to, you know, they had to keep divulging all of their data and now all their data is out there and that you see that Z drugs aren't even popular anymore. Like you have GPs who are giving people trazodone instead of Ambien, uh, you know, to, to sleep for four or five nights, you know, of discomfort for whatever reason. Um, so anyway, a long winded way of saying every single sleep drug that you take, whether it's alcohol, Benadryl, or any over-the-counter sleep aid, Z drugs, benzodiazepines, uh, antidepressants, anything like that. They all interfere with that sleep architecture that I'm talking about to various degrees. Um, alcohol decreases deep sleep a lot. REM, uh, REM sleep is impaired by benzos and Z drugs a lot. Now, the, the research, uh, what is the percentage? I don't know because the research is kind of, varies depending on how they, how they measured it and what, you know, you know how research goes. And so what happens, you know, what, what I, what I find clinically when I've done my sleep studies on guys that were now in fairness, most of them were using alcohol and Z drugs. And I was saying, I want you to do your sleep study the same way you always sleep. All right. So if they were taking Z drugs and, and cocktails, then that's what I wanted them to do for their sleep study. And they were coming back, like I said, 99% stage two sleep. And I've seen, I mean, I've seen at least a hundred sleep studies that way. So if you ask me, I think it destroys sleep architecture, but I can't say specifically how much you could attribute to each one. Um, I have seen people that just drink alcohol and have seen people that just use Z drugs and it still comes back all stage two sleep. I knew you all were going to love it. Thanks so much for listening to part one with Doc Parsley. Please leave uh, comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at quadcast. Leave a five-star rating and help support the show. You know we're trying to change that boogie wherever you listen to the show. So iTunes, Spotify, you name it. We, we appreciate the support. And everyone stay safe. Thanks for listening. And we'll connect again real soon. Peace.